Oh, glory to God. How many, how many are ready to get back into teaching this morning? That's what we are going to be doing this morning. This morning is a lot of teaching. I'm going to tell you, it's not a lot of preaching, but it is a lot of teaching. And so I hope you're geared up, ready for it. Um, before we do that, Mike, will you stand? Mike has the offering plate, and he's like, <laughs> he's got a little shake it. <laughs> uh, but let's pray over our offering. Get your offerings ready, your tithes ready, and let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much that you've given us the ability to give this morning. Lord, I pray over the offering. I pray over the tithe, everything that comes in. Lord, I pray that it be used for your glory. I pray that it would be used to help spread the gospel in this world, all over the world. We thank you for what's done locally, and we thank you for what's done worldwide. Lord, uh, we pray that you would bless those who give this morning, that we give not out of manipulation or coercion, but out of the cheerfulness of our hearts, out of the abundance of our hearts. So, Lord, we thank you for allowing us to give, for blessing us, so that we may bless you in Jesus' name. Lord, I pray over the message this morning. I pray that as it's delivered, as this teaching is given, it would be given with clarity. Lord, it would be given by your presence, by your spirit, that we would follow your leading always. Lord, I pray that as people hear what's being taught, that it would not just... They would not just hear it and let it go, but they would hold on to your truth and keep it mindfully in their hearts. We thank you and praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Mike, you can go ahead and collect the offering. Uh, God bless you as you give. And as you give, we are going to get back into the revelation of Jesus Christ, and we're in part eight. So we're in part eight. We're just getting into chapter six. And if you would go to the next slide there, Ashley, uh, this, again, uh, I've, I put it up every time. I'm going to continue to put it up. If any questions come up about Revelation or the end times, if you have questions about anything, you can email me or you can text me, uh, and then we will. Um, it was interesting. Somebody texted me a question this last week, which was a very good question, but it didn't have to do with the end times. It had to do with the election. And um, it was a very, very good question, actually. And... I want to encourage you that if you do have questions that come up or if you have questions that you've just wondered about for a long time and you want answers to them, I guarantee you I will not be able to answer everything. Amen? Amen. I may not be able to answer everything, but I'll do my very best to try to find an answer if it's out there. So throughout our study so far, we've seen instruction to the church by the Apostle John, who is also known as John the Revelator. Amen? And just a few weeks ago, we saw the worship that takes place in heaven, how glorious it is around the throne room of God. And then we looked at seven ways that we are to study Revelation. Seven ways. How many remember the seven ways? Anybody remember? Good, because I got a uh, reminder for you. One, read Revelation with humility. I think they're all going to come up, so that's good. Uh, read Revelation with humility. Revelation is not easy. We won't understand everything. Amen? How many know somebody who thinks they know it all? Anybody? Yeah. Uh, my wife might say she knows somebody who thinks they know it all sometimes. Uh, I'll be, I, I do not know it all. Amen? I'm not going to claim to know it all. If you're unwilling to live with any uncertainty, what's likely is that you will read into Revelation things that aren't there. You'll read into Revelation things that simply aren't there. So we have to beware of interpreters 
who seem or appear to have the answers to every small question. Read Revelation with an open mind. Be willing to admit that your interpretation could be wrong and be prepared to change your view if the biblical evidence points in a different direction. So we can't get staunch about this, but we have to be open to it. Number two, try to discover the message to the original readers. Not just what's given, not just what we take for us today, but what was given to them then. Number three, do not try to discover a strict chronological map of future events. So uh, we have a map, a timeline, linear. We go, man, this is exactly how it's going to happen, dot, 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 right? That's not how Revelation works. That's not how it's written. That's not what we see. Number four, take Revelation seriously, but don't always take it literally. We're going to see a lot of imagery some of it may make sense. Some of it may not make sense. Uh, when it comes to the imagery, number five, pay attention when John identifies an image. There's times where he identifies an image that means one thing in one way and another thing in another way. When he says uses woman, it may mean uh, the bride of Christ. It may mean a harlot. It may mean all sorts of different things, right? So equal uh, opposite things here, right? So uh, number six, we want to make sure we look at the Old Testament and historical context. If you read the Bible out of context, you're going to get bad ideas. When we read the Bible out of context, we start uh, developing bad uh, theology. We start having bad beliefs. Number seven, important here, focus on the main idea and don't get lost in the details. We can get so caught up in, well, what, is the crown, what does this light mean? What do the crowns mean? What does this mean? What does that mean? What about the dragon? What about the woman? What does this mean? Oh, is it, how's it going to happen? We can get so caught up in that that we miss out on the main thing. The main thing is, in the end, God wins, right? The main thing is, in the end, we're going we're to look at that today, too. In the end, Jesus wins. We're good. I've read to the end of the book. I know how it's going to end. You ever fast forward to the end of a movie? I do it all the time. Drives Jackie nuts. It does. I'm like, oh, okay, let me just find out. <laughs> Same thing with the book sometimes. Go to the end. Oh, that's who killed him. Oh, okay, great. We started to dive into Revelation chapter 6. In chapter 5, we saw the scroll with seven seals on it. Remember that? And so as each seal is loosed, it signifies what's going to happen in the earth during what is known as the period called the Great Tribulation. Now, if you remember, uh, two weeks ago, last week I preached on the election, two weeks ago we looked at the different views concerning, or I want us to look, I said we would begin to look at the different views concerning when the church will be raptured. How many remember that the word rapture is not found in the Bible? Not found anywhere in the Bible. But it means to be caught up with the Lord, and it comes from the verse that is found in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. It says this, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, somebody say amen, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Well, next slide, please. And it says this, verse 17, Then we who are alive and remain, say remain, shall be caught up, say caught up, together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always, say always, 
be with the Lord or we shall be with the Lord forever. So that is the rapture. That's the definition of the rapture. That's what's going to happen. We believe that this will happen at some point, but what we don't know is exactly when. So it should also be noted that not all Christians believe in the rapture. In fact, of those who believe in the rapture, it's actually a minority of the Christian faith that believes in the rapture. Many don't believe that there will be a great tribulation. So there are those, remember we talked about this before, there are those who look at Revelation as a historical book, that they are what's called historicists, okay? So those historicists think that Revelation has been unfolding since Jesus Christ rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. So that Revelation's been unfolding throughout history up until now. Uh, those who believe this, they love the Lord. Let me say it very clearly. They love the Lord. They teach and preach. They evangelize the gospel. R.C. Sproul would be one of these people, right, if you know that name. Uh, loves the Lord. Lo love the Lord. He's passed away now. But listen, they believe in all the essential aspects of our Christian faith. They believe in all the same things that we hold dear. Amen? So how many know when it comes to interpreting Revelation, not everybody's going to see it as we see it. Isn't that right, Susie? Not everybody's going to see it as we see it. It points us to the truth that in reality, the different beliefs and theories about Revelation and when everything takes place can be put into the category of non-essential. Of non-essential. So, how many know that within the Christian faith, there are some essentials and then there are some non-essentials? How many know that to be true? Anybody know that to be true? Let me give you an example of a non-essential. Maybe you can think of some as I'm talking about this. What is a non-essential? When did dinosaurs roam the earth? Don't know. We got a lot of guesses. We got a lot of theories. But we don't know. It's a non-essential. Uh, is there life on other planets? Is there life on other planets? We may have some evidence of life from other planets in this church. <laughs> Strange, strange, right? No, no, listen, we just simply don't know. Eli, I'm not looking at you. I love you. Essentials, non-essentials, non-essential. This is a question somebody raised. It's so stupid. I don't even want to say it. Did Adam, did Adam have a belly button? Isn't that dumb? Isn't that interesting <laughs> to think about? Now you're thinking about it, aren't you? Did Adam have a belly button? Don't know, don't care, right? What are, what are some essentials in our faith? Essentials in our faith. We have the non-essentials. Here's the essentials. Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, died on a cross, rose again three days later, right? Essential. Essential. Salvation is only found through the Jesus we find in the Bible. Amen? Not a false Christ. Not a false God, but a risen Christ this morning. Amen? Essential. Our salvation is not works-based. It is grace-based. Man, that's good stuff, right? Those are essentials. So essentials relate to salvation. Essentials relate to our relationship with Christ, right? And non-essentials don't. It's interesting to talk about. I enjoy going through the scriptures. I enjoy looking at it together. But we seem to get into a lot of arguments, or Christians seem to get into a lot of debates, about the beginnings and the ends. 
well, no, it happened this way for sure. Well, yeah, but what about this interpretation? Yeah, yeah, that's wrong. Well, it's going to happen this way at the end for sure. Yeah, but what about this and says this? No, no, that's all right. My one, I, I knew a guy. <laughs> he used to say it this way. Man, it's okay. You have the right to be wrong. It's not a good line, <laughs> okay? I've used it a few times. It's gotten me in some trouble, right? Yeah, it's gotten me in some trouble. It's, we've, we've used a few, we shouldn't use that line. It's not a very graceful thing to say. But how many know there are well, there, there's really just simply different ideas about how things are going to play out, okay? Essential salvation. Non-essential theories that, Listen, uh, I will say it this way. Those who hold different theories about revelation than you do or we do aren't in danger of losing salvation. They simply have different ideas about how things are going to play out. Okay? They just have different ideas about how things are going to play out. You say, well, I don't agree with that. That's okay. You don't have to. But I would say don't be so stuck in what you grew up in or what you've already established as truth that you can't maybe see where the Bible points in a different direction. Okay, so, number one. I know that there are many well-intentioned Christians who believe in what is known as or what is called the pre-tribulation rapture. Okay, so the idea is that before all the damage and destruction takes place, we're out of here. Amen? Amen. That's all right. There's a lot of people that believe that. I grew up in a church that believed that very clearly. Like, oh, before it gets started, boom, I'm gone. Right? So uh, if you've ever seen uh, <laughs> if you've ever seen the Left Behind movies or read the Left Behind books, Kirk Cameron, woo right? Uh, our most famous Christian actor is... <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's, it's not a great testimony. Uh, it's, uh, no, the truth is, I, I, I like uh, the books. Actually, I like the books a lot. I think it has a great storyline, great characters, all that good stuff. Um, but is it going to happen exactly that way? We don't know. Even the writers of the books, Tim LaHaye, Jerry Jenkins said, this is fiction. We don't know if this is exactly how it's going to play out, but it is an interesting idea, and it gives us an interesting ideas of how it may play out. So, Let's take a look at this theory and examine it a little more closely this morning. Uh, here's where the teaching comes in. The first idea of this came to widespread fame. How, how old do we think this idea is? Pre-tribulation rapture. How old would you say that this theory is? So if we, if we consider uh, uh, 2,000 years between now and, you know, the resurrection of Christ, right? If we say about 2,000 years, how old is this theory of pre-tribulation rapture? How many would say it's over 1,000 years old? Raise your hand. Yeah. How many would say it's over 1,500 years old? Right. Even older, right? How many would say it's over 500 years old? Yeah. How many would say it's over 100 years old? Right. It was developed around 1850 around 1850, by a guy named John Darby. Now, the idea had been played around a little bit before that, but Mr. Darby, under Mr. Darby, it came to widespread fame, okay? And it was done through, it was popularized through a man named Schofield who took Darby's theories and included them in notes in his, in his Bible. 
So if you've ever heard of the Schofield Reference Bible, in the notes, you'll have ideas that are put forth or notes that were put forth by John Darby. 1850 or so, it started, he started to believe it around 1830, and then around 1850 is when it became more widespread. So some would say with great conviction, this is what is going to happen, right? And while I understand the conviction, and while I understand, and listen, truthfully, I even hope for it myself, right? I mean, let's, let's be honest. Nobody wants to go through all that junk, right? Amen. Nobody wants to go through the great tribulation, right? But I can understand, and I can understand the conviction people have that, man, they want to get out of here, right? I believe that we should be open to saying that while it may happen this way, it may also happen a different way. While it may happen this way, absolutely, I'm not, I'm not disregarding that. While it may happen this way, it may happen a different way. So some believe that the church will experience some of the tribulation and then be taken away or caught up about halfway through or before the wrath of God is poured out on the earth. So this is what's called the mid-trib or mid-tribulation theory, right? Then others believe that the church will go through all of the tribulation, but that they will be sealed or protected from the wrath of God. And then at the end, those who survive will be caught up in the wind or caught up in the return of Christ, right? And so this is the, pre, the post-tribulation view, the post-tribulation, after-tribulation, right? So we have pre-trib, mid-trib, and post-trib views. That are, those are views that are all held by loving, committed, Bible-believing Christians. Amen? All, all the same views, all different views, but held by Christians who love the Lord, as well as those who don't believe in the rapture at all. Christians love the Lord. They don't believe in the rapture. I like what Matt Borcher said. Matt Borcher said this a few weeks ago. Maybe it was two weeks ago. I can't remember. Uh, we were talking about the subject, and he said he was a pan-trib believer. Uh, I actually read it online as well this week, so it wasn't just an original thought from Matt, but it's pretty good. He believes that it will all pan out in the end. Amen? We're, okay, it's interesting. It'll all pan out in the end. It shows an openness to believing that no matter how it works out, God's going to take care of us. Amen? No matter how it works out, God's going to take care of us. I think that's a good approach. I think that's the approach we should have. Um, now, I want to say this about Darby's uh, ideas. Because that is the most, within the Pentecostal church, that's probably the most widely believed of the theories, is pre-trib rapture, right? And so I want to say this. Just because it's a newer theory doesn't mean it's untrue. Okay? Let me, let me understand. Just because it's a newer theory doesn't mean it's inherently untrue, but I would say it just w wasn't widely accepted before, uh, before then or throughout today. Now, getting back to Revelation chapter 6, and we're going to see how some of these views might come into place. Steve, could you do me a favor? Could you make sure it's okay? Yeah, thank you. Now, let's look at Revelation chapter 6 and so see how these views might come into play, right? So we started to get into this verse a few weeks ago, and we begin in verse 1. Thank you, Susie. Revelation chapter 6. Oh, no, what did I just do? Oh, no. Oh, no, that my, uh, yeah, right, church is over. Got to go. Uh, no, 
my uh, iPad is has been a little screwy lately, and so I'm trying to make sure. Ah, oh, there we go. Praise the Lord. Everybody say praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. You get to keep preaching. Hallelujah. Revelation 6, verse 1 through 2, it says this. We've already gone over this a little bit. Now I saw when, this, when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, come and see. Go to the next slide. It says, and I looked and behold a white horse. Say a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. The first seal is open, and what we are seeing is a picture of who we refer to as the Antichrist. It is a picture of who we refer to as the Antichrist. So at the beginning of the Great Tribulation, now I want you to hear this carefully. According to Scripture, if we're looking at Scripture, this is Tribulation now. Great Tribulation. At the beginning of the Great Tribulation, this Antichrist will come to great power and will go out conquering. So here's what I want to pause for a minute and examine the pre-tribulation theory. Because within many Christian circles, there always seems to be talk about who the Antichrist is, when the mark of the beast is going to happen, when all these things are going to happen. How many know that's been talked about for a long time? Right? If you're a Christian for any, extent of, any, any period of time, you've always heard, well, watch out, that's the mark of the beast. Something's, something's happened, new technology, something, that's the mark of the beast. So how many, uh, how many know UPC codes on cereal boxes, right? UPC codes were once considered mark of the beast. Credit cards. Oh, no, that's the mark of the beast. Who's the Antichrist? We get all caught up in these things. And as Christians, we get caught up in these things. But there's an interesting thing about this, because if you believe in the pre-tribulation rapture, then it would stand to reason that when these things take place, we're already gone. We're out of here. So a lot of times we worry about, well, is it this or is it that? And we simply don't know. What I would say is this. Let's not be afraid of technology just because we're not sure of where it's leading. Now, I will also say this. When we think about the timeline of the end times, when we don't know when the Great Tribulation is going to happen, we don't know when it's going to come to place, we don't know what's going to lead to it, right? Here's what I would say. I don't think it would be wrong or even presumptuous to say that some of the technology that we have today could be used in the end of days. I don't think it would be wrong or presumptuous to say that some of the technology that's being developed right now is being used towards the end of days. Now, what is one of those technologies? Some people would say, well, it's a vaccine. They want to give us a vaccine, and Bill Gates wants to spy on everybody. You've heard that, right? Yeah. <laughs> that, there, there's some, some would say that. Some would say, well, it's, they want to put trackers in us. That's the mark of the beast. Listen, that is not the mark of the beast. Biblically, that is not the mark of the beast. Here's what the mark of the beast is. We're going to get into all this more in depth, but here's what the mark of the beast is. The mark of the beast is a decision you're going to have to make about whether or not you're going to serve the Lord or if you're going to serve the world system. There are some people who will be just uh, 
anarchists. They don't want to serve the world system. And so rather than serve Jesus, they're just going to be on their own. And they would not want to receive it either. It's a, it's a, we don't know exactly what it's going to be, but we know that it's going to be either in your right hand or your forehead. Okay, so we've heard about this for many years. How many remember in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, the movies that came out called, uh, oh, what was it? Image of the Beast. There's a few of them. Uh, Tim, you remember those? It wasn't like the Left Behind series, but it was like old school Left Behind. So somebody's mowing their lawn, and all of a sudden the lawnmower's still running, and they're gone. Somebody's frying bacon in a pan, and all of a sudden the bacon's burning, and they're gone, right? So, I mean, it's those kind of movies. We used to watch them at church camp, and they used to scare the junk out of us, right? So we would just, I mean, they were like Christian horror films at the time. Uh, They really were not. (laughs) They did not let you sleep easy. Uh, man, I'm telling you, they, these were like, you know, get right, get now, you know, and he's coming back anytime. And yes, he could, and I understand that. But we want to be super careful about saying this is this or this is this or that's that. What we want to say is we can see how the technology that's being developed now may lead towards that. But we want to be very careful about saying that's that. Now, somebody had asked me once, actually pretty recently, well, what do you see happening today that could lead towards that? What's the technology happening today that could really lead towards that? And so let me talk to you just for a second, just as a, just as a person, right? As a pastor, yes, but just as a person. And I'm not saying this, uh, that this is definitively what's going to happen, but I will say this, as, as long as we're talking about theories, how many know what SpaceX is? Anybody know what SpaceX is? Anybody? No? Okay. Elon, uh, Elon Musk. Am I saying the name right? Yeah. Founder of Tesla, right? Uh, so far, he has launched, I want to say, about 700 satellites into the lower orbit of the Earth. The goal is to reach 12,000 satellites. Now, Here's what's going to happen. So if you look, look up in the sky at night, sometimes you'll see uh, what's called a satellite train. And so that's, that's Elon Musk. Those, those satellite trains, it's 60 satellites at a time that are being put into the atmosphere, that are being put into the orbit. And what it's going to do is it's going to create eventually a net around the entire world. You say, is this real? Absolutely. You can look it up online. It's very easy to look up. SpaceX, they're launching rockets all the time. The goal, the permission that they have, is to launch 12,000. And what it will do is it will cover the Earth, and you will be able to get high-speed Internet anywhere in the world. Anywhere in the world. That means over by the airport, I will be able to get high-speed Internet. Hallelujah. Amen? So if you live out in the middle of nowhere, you're rural, whatever, you go RVing a lot, whatever it is, they're doing this to prepare for high-speed internet everywhere, including extremely remote areas or islands where there would be no access to that type of thing. Now, you say, what does that have to do with the end of times? When we talk about people being reached with the gospel of Jesus, people being reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ, the internet is a tool that has been magnificently used so far, but is limited in reaching those, those areas. And when you think about internet being able to cover the entire earth, a net being able to cover the entire earth and give high-speed internet anywhere, I believe it opens the door 
for unreached people groups to hear the gospel of Jesus. If anything is leading towards the end times more than that, I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. And so it's something to watch. It's something to be aware of. But remember, we want to focus on the main idea, not get caught up in the details. Because listen, if we get caught up in the details, we become conspiracy nuts. All right? Come on. If we get caught up in the details, we become conspiracy nuts. How many remember Y2K? Anybody? How many stored water? How many stored gasoline? How many stored toilet paper? That would have been good before 2020. All right? Y2K, I still remember. People freaking out. People putting in storage, gasoline, food items. They were, I mean, all the, the preppers, right? They were prepped. They were ready to go. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with being prepared. I don't think there's anything wrong with being prepared or being ready in case something may happen, right? But Y2K came along. I still remember it, Mike. I was at a buddy's house waiting, watching the uh, New York City. The ball was dropping. Ten. Nine. Eight. Seven. Six. Five. Four. Three, two, one. I thought it would be a good idea to shut the power off at that point. <laughs> and I did. <laughs> and everyone, oh, for a second. And then I flipped it back on. Because everyone's like, it happened. We're back in the Stone Ages, right? I mean, that's how people thought it was going to happen. It was discovered. It was fixed. It didn't happen. But there was a lot of controversy surrounding it. How many people said, this is when Jesus is going to return? This is the beginning of the end. He's returning. And then nothing happened. And then they said, oh, well, he returned in secret. Right? You didn't see him. It was, he was invisible. It's quackery. It's nutcakes. They're, they're cereal Christians, right? They're fruits, flakes, and nuts. Come on. But listen, we have to be very, very careful that we don't get caught up in the minutiae and miss the main idea, main idea. So, I suppose that at some point in the discussion surrounding the Antichrist, it always comes up with, who is he? Who is he? Maybe uh, trying to figure out if we look at leaders today, can we try to discover who the Antichrist is? So throughout history, there has been speculation on who is the Antichrist. So throughout history, uh, how many, many, many people thought it was Hitler. Many people thought Hitler was the Antichrist. And I want to say this carefully. While he was not the Antichrist, he had the spirit of Antichrist. There are many leaders who have the spirit of Antichrist that are not the Antichrist that we see in Scripture, but are definitely anti-Christ or anti-Jesus. Many thought it was Hitler. Some thought it was JFK. This is interesting. Many people thought it was JFK, that when JFK was assassinated, three days they were waiting to see if he was going to rise again under the power of Satan that he was going to rise again. Hmm. Going back a long way, some people looked at Nero as the Antichrist. Some still do if they're historicists. So it should be noted that many leaders throughout history, of course, have operated in the spirit of Antichrist, but we have yet to see, or it has yet been revealed to us, 
if that person is alive today or who that person is that will ultimately be the Antichrist found in Scripture. Here's what we can know from Scripture. The Antichrist will be empowered by Satan. 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 through 10 says, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs. Ashley, you may have that uh, slide there. Do you have that slide? Yeah. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. Go to the next slide. And it says, And with all unrighteousness, deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. The coming of the lawless is won by the activity of Satan. He will have power, false signs, and wonders. He's doing miracles. Signs, wonders. I'm telling you, when we chase signs and wonders, rather than the presence of God, we get ourselves in trouble. Amen? We get ourselves in trouble. What else? What, what, how else can we identify the Antichrist? Very simple thing here. 1 John 2.22, he will deny Jesus is the Christ. He will deny Jesus is the Christ. 2 Thessalonians 2, 3-4 says this, he will exalt himself against every object, object of worship and declare that he is God. He will, he will exalt himself against every object of worship, every object, Christian, Islam, Hindu, doesn't matter. They're all done. I'm God. That's who, what he will do. The Bible gives us also a few clues as to where he comes from. Who is he? We don't know. We can see some signs of who he may be, right? Two, where is he going to come from? Daniel 11 points us to a, what's called a king from the north. Now, it causes us to look at, many theologians look at the Assyrians in the Middle East region. Isaiah speaks of this as well, in a, uh, he speaks of it in Isaiah chapter 30. And then some would say that it's also possible that he could come from a different leg of the north, which would be Europe. And so we go, well, okay, there's, there's interesting ideas. The point of that is this. It seems unlikely, and I'll say this carefully, it seems unlikely to suggest that the Antichrist could come from America. It seems unlikely. I can't say definitely, because how many know how many, there's a lot of different nationalities within our, within our country, right? So we can't say definitely, but we could say it's unlikely. In fact, I want to say this carefully. I want you to listen to this carefully. As much as people have studied and looked for years, there seems to be no mention of this area of the world at all in the end times. There seems to be no mention of America at all in the end times. And you say, well, what does that mean? I don't know. I don't want to speculate. There's plenty who have. Some say that means America doesn't exist at that time. Some say that we're just simply not a nation of relevance at that time. We're a superpower now. What if we're not later? I don't know. It's not to say it's entirely ruled out, but again, it seems unlikely. Here's what we do know. What we do know is that the Antichrist will bring destruction to the world. This is the first seal we see in Revelation chapter 6. So uh, go to the next slide. All right. So this is an artist's depiction of what is called the four horsemen 
of the apocalypse. How many, how many have seen this before? How many are aware of the four horsemen of the apocalypse? Okay, so uh, the first one is the guy in white there, uh, the guy white horse, right? That's the Antichrist. He's, he has a bow. Uh, you can see they get progressively worse. You can see they get progressively scarier, progressively worse. It brings us to the second seal and the second horseman. Revelation chapter 6, verse 3 through 4 says this, And when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come and see. Another horse, listen, fiery red went out. And it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth and that people should kill one another. And there was given to him a great sword. So in this, we see that there is a great war. This will be an all-encompassing war. Many have referred to it as World War III. Now, let us take note that it was granted to him. What does that mean? This means that God will give permission for this to happen. That they will not be unleashed until God gives them permission to be unleashed as it is part of his judgment. How many know this is not Old Testament, right? This is New Testament. There will be the judgment of God. We can't forget that. Then we see the third seal, verse 5 through 6. It says this. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he sat on it with a pair of scales in his hands. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, and this is where it gets a little confusing, a quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius. And do not harm the oil and the wine. You say, Pastor David, what does that mean? It means this. We will see widespread worldwide famine. Widespread worldwide famine. The price of everything will skyrocket because of supply, of which there will be very little, and demand, of which there will be very great. When it talks about do not harm the oil and the wine, it points to the truth that only the super rich are going to be, be able to maintain any kind of lifestyle. It's not good news. It's not rah, rah, thank you, Lord, chish, boom, bah, right? Now the fourth seal. Revelation 6, 7 through 8 says this. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, come and see. Go to the next slide. And it says, so I looked and behold a pale horse. And the name of him who sat on it was death. And Hades followed with him. And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth, a fourth of humanity, to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. The horsemen will bring death, destruction to one quarter of the planet. Imagine unimaginable devastation. Unimaginable devastation. It may be very well unbearable for those who survive, but take heart because there's worse coming. Revelation 6, 9-11 through 11 says this, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under that the altar of the souls who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they had held. And they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each one of them. It's a good, this is actually good news. Then a white robe was given to each one of them and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer 
until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were were completed. There are those, there, this is interesting for a few reasons, and it's this. The souls of those who are martyred or killed for the faith cry out for vengeance from the Lord upon the earth, and God's first, he, he does this, he, he first clothes them in white robes and then tells them to rest because more are going to be joining them soon. Now, keep in mind, this is happening during the tribulation. So this shows us that within the tribulation, within the seven-year period, that there will be believers. Those who are martyred for their faith. Those who give up their life for their faith. Now, some would say that these are the ones who missed the rapture, if it would be a pre-trib view, that they missed the rapture and then became believers, right? And so they would be called... Uh, uh, okay. But some would say it speaks to the church as a whole being in the tribulation the whole time. And that would be a post-trib view. What is the answer? Don't know. What's the answer? We don't know. And, and listen, we have to be okay with saying that's okay. We simply don't know. We, we can put our trust in God, knowing whether it's, it's at this time or later, we will be with all those who believe in Christ. Amen? We can put our faith in God, knowing that God is good. Amen? It brings us to the sixth seal and the end of chapter 6. Revelation 6, 12 through 17. This is a lot of scripture. Please stay with me. It says this. I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake. Listen to the language that's spoken here. And the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood. And the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it's shaken by a mighty wind. You see, this is very poetic language. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it's rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And all the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave, free man, they hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountainsides and said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of God or the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. They are doing everything they can to hide from the wrath of God. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Now, we see really poetic language here. We see very figurative language, but we see it with a large dose of reality, and the reality is this. There will be an earthquake that will shake the very foundations of earth. It will shake the, the very foundations. It's the, the hand of God coming down to touch every fault line. The mountains will crumble. Islands will move. The devastation will be unbelievable. The death toll will be astronomical. And as we look at the timeline of Revelation, this all seems to happen within the first three and a half years. That's a tough three and a half years. But it all seems to happen in this three and a half years. It's the view of the futurist. Of course, the historicist would say something different. So again, this is interesting. There's a lot of interpretation about how and when and where this will all take place as to whether or not we'll even be there to get to see it take place. We're not sure. But let me remind you of the end of Revelation this morning. Because how many know 
this isn't fun stuff. I mean, it's interesting stuff, but it's not like, boy, I'm just filled with sunshine and rainbows this morning. Right? It's not, it's not that kind of thing. Revelation's not an easy book, and at times it can be a pretty scary book. It can be a pretty scary book when you think about it. It's a description of the end of the world. It's a description of death and destruction and chaos, but it will ultimately lead us towards peace. Amen? It will ultimately lead us towards peace. But understandably, we have to go a ways in our study before we get to that peace. We have to go a ways. So take heart this morning in that no matter how it plays out, take heart knowing that we are covered by the blood of the Lamb. Amen? We have a clear understanding of our ultimate destination. Amen? That's heaven with Jesus. And if you do happen to get a bit troubled, I want to end this morning with this. If you'll stand with me this morning. It's worth reading towards the end every once in a while. It is. Maybe, maybe, maybe when it gets a little disturbing, we'll read towards the end each week. So this morning, I want to jump ahead quite a bit to the, towards the end of Revelation. Not all the way to the end, but Revelation 21, verse 3 through 5 says this. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. Go to the next slide. And it says this, and listen to this carefully. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Verse 5. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. Isn't that good to hear? Man, death, destruction, chaos, he's going to wipe every tear from our eyes. And then he'll say, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, saying to, to John, Write, for these words are true and faithful. Revelation is not an easy book. It's a tough one. There's some tough things that are going to happen. Some tough things that we look at and go, boy, into the world stuff. It's not sunshine and rainbows. But God, you're still good. You're still in control. You make all things work for your glory. We thank you for it. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for those who are here, those who heard the message. Lord, I pray that you would keep it in our hearts, that you would keep us aware of things that are happening in this world and aware of your ultimate glory. Lord, even those who are going through a really tough time right now, those who are struggling with questions of why, those who are struggling with finding answers for their children, those whose lives have been just thrown into chaos, let us keep our eyes upon you this morning. No matter what distractions may face us, let us keep our eyes focused on you and your goodness and your glory and know that you make all things work for good. So, Lord, I pray over those who are here this morning. Pray over those who are watching online. I pray that you would bless us and keep us. 
Lord, that you would cause your face to shine down upon us. And Lord, I pray that you would give us rest in Jesus' name. Amen.